Erev Tov, everybody. Welcome to another edition of our Monday night class. We are here studying Sefer Mishle, the wonderful, amazing work of Shlomo HaMelech. It's been a couple of weeks since we've uh, dived into the book, but we're back. If you're following with us live, we are studying Perek Tet, Chapter 9. If you are following with us on our podcast recording, we are still studying Chapter 9. So uh, here we are. We are in a very important parak uh, that kind of is divided into two. The first uh, six pesukim uh, of this chapter, Shlomo Melech describes a feast that is prepared by a wise woman. Uh, she sets up her house, prepares food, invites guests uh, so that they can partake in her meal. She addresses her guests, uh, guides them on the path of life, so on and so forth, which we'll expound as we go on. Uh, later on in the parak, we find a similar feast that is hosted by a foolish woman. Um, but the, the, the manner in which her invitations are extended uh, convey to her guests a radically different um, approach to life, as we will see. And uh, these two parts of the chapter, the uh, co- uh, contrast, really, that uh, are, the, bring to light the two themes that are prevalent in the book that we find. We have uh, one that we spoke about in Perigzain, the power of the adulteress to draw a person into sin. That's going to be represented by a second part of the of the chapter. And uh, Perichet, which was the last Perich we, we, we learned, spoke of the virtues of Chochmah and the positive influences that came along with it. Um, but as we're going to see, there's great, great Meshalim and metaphors in this Perich, referring to some of the ideas uh, that uh, that we grew up studying, such as the creation of the world, the structure of the Torah. So without further ado, we'd like to get into this. Shlomo HaMelech begins Perek Tet with a pasuk that is quite well known to many studiers of Tanakh. Chochmot banta beita chatzva amudea shiva. Which means that wisdom has built her house she carved out her seven pillars. So the syntax of the pasuk is a little bit strange because chokhmot is plural. Many forms of wisdom. Banta, she built or has built, is singular. So what is the plural chokhmah that is taking place and what's being built singular? So the al-sheikh here explains that the plural is a reference to the Torah she'bichtav and the Torah she'be'alpeh, the written and the oral Torah. And therefore, it follows that the world was created through the combined power of the two. Torah and Torah And it's only through the people uh, who engross themselves in the study of the Torah that the world can continue to exist, that one world. Metaphorically, the Pasuk really teaches us that wisdom has to be arranged in an orderly fashion. has to be done the right way. Just like a builder of a home must plan, arrange the construction draw out the plans, first laying the foundation, then constructing the walls, and then adding the upper floor, so on and so forth. So too, when a person studies Torah, the uh, the teachings need to be in the correct order. Often I have times, I spoke about a ma- times in the past here, about individuals that come to me and they say, okay, how do I study Kabbalah? How do you study Kabbalah? What do you mean how you study Kabbalah? Do you know Parashat Shavuah? Do you read the Torah? Do you read Chumash with Rashi every week? Do you study the basic Halachol, Yichot of Shabbat? You're coming in, you want to jump into the Kabbalah? And you don't know the basics. It's not the way it works. 
There's a foundation, there's things involved before you jump to the roof. That's not the way it works. She carved out her seven pillars. So what are these seven pillars? A lot of commentary here. Rashi explains that HaKadosh Baruch Hu fashioned the world with wisdom, and the seven pillars symbolize the seven days of creation. Ah, but on the seventh day, Shabbat, there was no work. So what are you being built? What are you building on the seventh day? So Chachamim tell us that Shabbat is actually also a day of creation. Why? In the sense that Menucha, rest, was missing until the arrival of Shabbat. There was no such thing as Menucha until the arrival of, of Shabbat. So that's also kind of a part of a creation. The Malbim expands or elaborates on this metaphor. He says in the beginning of creation, the entire potential of the universe, the structure of the house, Banta Beita, was brought into being Yeshme'ain, from nothing. It was Tovavo, and then all of a sudden we had this tremendous potential. After the seven pillars were carved out, that is, on each day of the seven days of creation, there was the potential of that day was brought to fulfillment. And now it was established in its in its completed form. Uh, this is really comparable to someone who plants uh, six seeds into the ground. Now each one will sprout on a different day, and each one will form its own unique plant, and therefore the creation of, of the world was, was similar, because it's all there, it's waiting to erupt, who had it, that everything was created within the first six days. The creation of Shabbat in itself, a day without physical activity, is still considered a pillar of the world. It symbolizes the principle that HaKadosh Baruch Hu can suspend the rules of nature, run the world miraculously, says the Malbim. And that's why this is how the seven pillars that HaKadosh Baruch Hu laid foundation with. Rashi, in fact, uh, cites a, a different metaphor to this pasuk. He says that the seven pillars in reference to the seven books of Humash. Ah, but there's only five books of Humash. So we've said in previous Shurim as well that the book of Bamidbar is actually divided into uh, three. There's two Pesukim over there, Vahibin Soharon, that it's really considered its own separate book. And therefore Bamidbar has three books, add the other four, and then you have seven. So another uh, uh, idea that this is an allegory to the seven books. The Midrash states that Banta Beita, has the that Chochmot Banta Beita, the Chochmah has built her house, refers to Torah as a house. Achachamim tell us, call me Shekana lo divre Torah, Kana lo bait leolamaba. Anyone who has acquired the words of Torah has acquired himself a house in Olamaba. The Chafet Chaim on this uh, statement of the of the rabbis explains that a person needs to erect his own spiritual house when it comes time to enter Gan Eden. His soul needs a place to live. Uh, he's not going to be able to borrow this house from from others in the next world. It has to be built by himself. And only through toiling and laboring in the Sayyid Torah is a person can, can merit that, that home. But the truth is, in this world, there are two ways to attain a house. A person can attain a house either by building it with his bare hands, or if he's unable to do so, can't build a house, he buys a house. He purchases it with money. The same two alternatives, says, says, Chayim, says the Chafetz Chaim, apply in Olam Abba. If he's a Tamit Chacham and he's a Torah scholar, 
then that spiritual palace waiting for him in Olam Abba is built through his own Torah study. Al tikre banaich el abonaich. Tamidei chachamim are considered not just children of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but bonaich. They are builders. They build their eternity through the study of Torah. But a person who cannot learn, a person who doesn't have the ability, then how can he build his house in Olam Abba? The answer is you buy it. You acquire it through money, meaning you support the people who are studying in Torah institutions. Of course, the Yisachar and Zebulun partnership that, that has been studied and reviewed many, many times before. Tavcha tivcha mascha af archa shulchana. This wise woman prepared her meat, mixed her wine, and also set her table. Continuing with the metaphor of creation, Rashi explains that this is uh, a metaphor for all solids and liquids. According to the Gemara, this refers to the oceans and the rivers, all the needs of the world, the water source, the earth, the gasoline, petrol, everything is found in there in the world that HaKadosh Baruch Hu set up for us. According to Vilna Gaon, when this woman's preparing the meat, it's in reference to Torah She'bichtab, the written Torah. Mixing her wine, as wine needed to be diluted back then, is the Mishnah, because many laws mentioned there um, are, are mixed up all throughout the Chamishah Chumshet Torah, just like you have to mix wine. And a set table refers to the Talmud. The Talmud is when all the laws are arrayed like a set table. The Malbim has a slightly different interpretation. Malbim says, meat is re- in reference to the Chochmah, to wisdom, because that's the sustenance of the soul, as we've spoken. The, just like the food is, is what sustains ourselves, it sustains life, so too, wisdom is what sustains the lev, sustains the heart, and therefore, we can't succumb to the influence of the Yetzir Hara. Wine refers to Bina, understanding, because wine has the ability to gladden the heart, and levav, also bina as well, it uplifts it, and allows us to understand, and derive one thing from another. The set table is in reference to the da'at, to the knowledge. Just as this woman sets her table with all types of food and sweets, so too da'at, knowledge, includes all types of worldly knowledge. So you have chokhmah, bina, and da'at, in reference to the meat, the wine, and the set, and the set table. She has sent out her maidens. She announces upon the wings of the city heights. So who are these maidens? Well, using the metaphor of the creation of the world. So the maidens have to be Adam and Chava. They're the, according to the analogy of the creation. If you want to use the metaphor of Torah, then it has to be the maidens are Moshe and Aharon. Wisdom does not personally invite her guests. That's not the way it works. She has to send messengers. This means that no individual can attain the Torah's wisdom on his own. He has to receive it through the words of the Chachamim, the words of the Nevi'im, the prophets, the sages, the teachers. And therefore, these maidens, represented by Moshe Naharon, or Adam Chava, or Avot, they, they are sent out in every generation to invite the generation and the, the population to partake in the wisdom's feast. I want to take a moment right now to to mention something you probably read in the news. We, it was a very, very difficult weekend in the Jewish community, Jewish world, 
the loss of four great um, giants of, of Torah. Um, and again, I'm not here to compare one to the other, but two of them for me really stick out was Rav Soloveitchik and um, Rav Tversky. Rav Soloveitchik, of course, from the Soloveitchik dynasty of Brisk, a family that were such Talmudic masters. They had such a command for the Gemara, likes that we haven't seen in, in, in who knows how long. And that stemmed anyone that went through the yeshiva system, um, e- even if it wasn't the yeshiva that studied that way, has heard the name of Chaimi Brisk, the Briskarav, and all the great Soloveitchik family and the dynasty and what they represented in this world. And it was it's a tremendous loss. And we study their books. We understand what it means when you hear that name, Soloveitchik. And, you know, no question the impact that they had on rabbis around the world today, now teaching over the Torah that they taught, is, uh, is profound. And uh, for Rav Tversky, what can I say? A little bit of a different style. Came from a Hasidic background. Spoke a lot about the soul and the neshama. He was a doctor. He was a person that dealt with individuals struggling with addiction. He used his Torah knowledge to bring people who were suffering, who were people in, in the dumps, back up to show them some light. Each one had their ability. I, for one, own many books of Rav Tversky, right? A, a, a beautiful quote that I, I read in his name after he wrote his 33rd book. He ended up writing over 60 but after he wrote his 33rd book, someone says, what does it feel like to write 33 books? How did you do it? His response, unbelievable. He said, I did not write 33 books. I wrote one book in 33 different ways. Now remember that, let me repeat that. I wrote one book in 33 different ways. Because there's only one truth. There's only one emet. All of his books was just leading to the nucleus, was, reading, was, was allowing us to find a way to seek emet. He's just different ways of writing it. Unbelievable. This is who he was. It's a very, it was a very sad weekend to read all those notifications. But it's exactly what we said. They were the messengers of the Chochmah. They were the messengers. And, and it is us to, to nurture, to suck whatever we can from, from our teachers and from those messengers, the sages and the Chachamim as well. Um, those are the maidens. Shalchana Arotea. The Midrash, the Kuchimoni, um, quotes several Midrashim or applications of these Pesukim. Uh, some say, uh, one Midrash writes that in the future, uh, the Bet HaMikdash is going to be built. Gog Gog. Gog is the, the king who will organize the alliance to attack Bnei Israel. He's going to be defeated. And for seven years, reference to the seven pillars, um, Israel, the Jewish people, will burn and destroy all the vast ammunition which the enemies had sought to wage war against them. And this was going to be a time where the righteous and tzaddikim are going to be feasting. Figuratively, they're going to be eating the meat and drinking the wine and have their table set and enjoying the spoils of the enemy warriors. And um, who are the maidens? The way the maidens is, is Yechezkel Navi, who prophesies the downfall of, uh, of Gog. This is what's written in Midrash. Yalkut Shimoni. Actually, the Yalkut Shimoni also brings the Midrash that this refers to Esther Malka. We are soon approaching the Chodesh Adar. We that this refers to Esther Malka, who, upon seeing the upcoming misfortune of her people, she also arranged the feast for Achashverosh and the wicked Haman. He had, uh, 
intoxicated them with wine, and through her deeds, Esther Malka set a table for herself in Olam Abam, and as well set a table for her in this world. Of course, the Mishte Purim, the Purim Seuda, which will never be abolished from the Jewish people's calendar, even after the time of Mashiach. And there's other Midrashim that the, uh, the Chachamim attribute to these Pesukim. She continues to speak to her guest, this wise woman, and she says, Pasuk Dalet, Mifeti Yasur Hena, whoever is a simpleton, let him turn here. Chasarlev Amralo, as for the one who lacks understanding, she says to him, Lechu Lachmu Belachmi, come partake of my food, Ustu Beyain Masachti, and drink of the wine that I have mixed. So this person is being advised to come to the house of study in order to become wise. A person who lacks a sense to prepare his own meal should turn from this place and come over here where there's food ready, there's bread and there's wine. Same call to someone who lacks understanding. The Malbim explains why a simpleton and one without understanding are invited to this meal. You see, a simpleton is a person who's easily swayed because he lacks the basic tenets of wisdom. But once he acquires wisdom, which is the lechem, the bread mentioned in the next pasuk, he's going to leave his foolish ways. The Torah is going to provide him with whatever he needs necessary to outwit the Yisrara. One who lacks understanding, the hasar lev, he knows the principles of wisdom, but he just lacks the moral strength to control the Yisrara and overcome those desires. But once he attains understanding, which we said is the yayin, the wine referred to in Pasukei, in the next Pasuk, then he's going to free himself away from the yetzara and be able to follow the proper path. If you don't have your own food, says the, the hostess, come here and enjoy, come here and enjoy my bread and wine. In other words, the Torah's wisdom is delightful. It enlightens the students and imparts knowledge to them. All those people desire to study should come and study the Torah, even if it doesn't make sense right now. The Torah is going to make it make sense for you. The Torah is likened to bread. Just like the world cannot exist without bread, so too the world cannot exist without Torah. Bread refers to the Torah shebikhtav, and the wine to the Torah shebe'alpeh. Just like bread is ready to be eaten, so too the Torah shebikhtav, the Chamisha Chumshet Torah is ready to be studied. Easy. Open up Chumash. Read the story. Study the mitzvot. It's good. The Torah Shebaal Peh, however, is like the wine. The wine needs to be mixed in order to prepare it for the consumption, for its consumption. And that's why there needs to, there's a lot of Shakla Vitaria. There's a lot of in-depth study when it comes to the Mishnayot and the Gemarot. And therefore, that is what needs to be done. It's like wine, says the Vilna Gaon. The Chafet Chaim also expounds on uh, the concept of bread being a metaphor for Torah. Just like bread is what provides us with the physical sustenance for a person's body, the words of Torah provides us with the spiritual nourishment we need for our neshama. Therefore, a person's Torah study and, and, um, and his attitude towards it needs to be parallel to the food that he intakes. Uh, a person makes sure to eat once a day. A person needs to make sure he studies once a day. The Gemara tells us on the final day of judgment, uh, Did you set a certain amount of time every day to the study of Torah? Uh, 
Just like you said, times to eat, you have to set times for study. And if for whatever reason you forgot to eat one day, you were fasting or you were so busy, then you need to make up your strength. So you eat a little bit more the next day because you don't want to be weak. So do a person that for whatever reason missed the dafyomi one day or missed the shiur, he's got to make it up. He's got to inject more spirituality what he missed the day before. And unfortunately, a person who abstains from eating food for a prolonged period of time no longer feels hunger or a desire for food. What does he feel? Just overall weakness. And same too, the same effect occurs in the spiritual realm. A person that abstains from Torah for a prolonged period of time, even if he doesn't do it willfully, he loses that innate yearning to study. And it's going to be very difficult for him to resume a normal routine of Torah study. That's why routine is so important. That's why daily study has become the new norm. Whether it's the daily Dafyomi, whether it's the daily uh, Rambam, the daily Mishnayot, people are doing this daily Tanakh. This is like the new fad, but it's working. It's working because it keeps you on a schedule. You know you got to do it. And if you don't, you got to make it up tomorrow before before you fall behind as well. According to the Midrash, bread symbolizes the laws of the Torah and wine symbolizes the secrets. That's why the gematria of Yain is 70, the same gematria as, as Sod, which is secrets. Leave your paths, simple ones, and live, stride in the way of understanding. Leave the company of those who are unintelligent, says Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky. Acquire understanding. That's what's going to bring you life. Immerse yourself in the world of Torah. Frequent the Bet Midrash and the Bet Knesset. Warm yourself with the insightful thoughts of the Chachamim. Walk towards happiness. That's what's important. Yoser letz lokeach lo kalon umochiach lerasha mumo. Pasuk Zayin, one who chastises a scoffer, acquires disgrace for himself. And he who rebukes a wicked man is his blemish. Here Shlomo HaMelech decides to sidetrack a little bit and talks about the importance of rebuking one's friend. Rashi explains that if a person attempts to rebuke a wicked man, then it's his blemish. Because the latter, the latter is not only going to ignore the rebuke, He's going to insult whoever wishes to correct him. And this is a prohibition against speaking with those people who entice others to do Avodah Zarah. Don't even attempt to rebuke them. This is the meaning of The Eben Ezra says, What does mean? By rebuking, and they're not going to listen to you, then it's, it's going to make it worse, says the Eben Ezra. We're going to go more in depth when we see a beautiful story coming up soon. Chokhmah doesn't attempt to admonish either the scoffer or the wicked person. When you admonish the let the scoffer, you disgrace yourself because the scoffer is only going to deride and scorn you in return. It's not worth it. Rebuking a wicked person as well, it, it brings a blemish upon a person because now he responds to you with insults. So what have you gained? And he's going to say, ah, you're, you're, you're screaming at me. Well, what about you? You did this, A, B, and C. And now you look bad. So therefore, wisdom has no dealings with such people, says the Metsudot. Al tochach let penisnaeka. Very famous pasuk from Shlomo HaMelech. Do not rebuke a scoffer lest he hate you. 
However, hochach lechacham veyaveka. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. See, when you rebuke a scoffer, he considers himself to be wise and is convinced that his way is correct. So what are you doing? You should rebuke a wise man instead because the wise man wishes to refine all of his character traits. He wants to learn from everyone. Even though he's already wise and he knows what sin is. I'm not going to tell a tzaddik what a sin is. He knows what it is. But still, you rebuke him because for him it's perfection. A great way of comparing this is to uh, the way a woman may use a mirror. She prefers a magnifying mirror. You know those magnifiers that make your face look uh, huge? Why? Because it's easy to spot the blemish. It makes it more visible. You could treat the blemish. You could remove what's wrong. And she can perfect her appearance. Similarly, the tzaddikim, they're also happy when others point out and magnify their sins in front of others, even if they're the tiniest minuscule infractions. That's something that they really care because they want to purify themselves of every flaw. The more one magnifies their imperfection, says the Vinagaon, to the, to the tzaddikim, the more he becomes beloved to them. Incredible Gemaran Masechet Arachid that relates to Rabbi Yohanan ben Nuri, one of the great Tanaim, testified that there were many times that he caused Rabbi Akiva to be punished. Why? Because he would complain to Rabban Gamliel, who was the Nasi, if he saw any improper action on Rabbi Akiva's part. We're talking about Rabbi Akiva. He would go and complain. So Rabban Gamliel heard this went to rebuke Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva would, would, would start crying. He saw it. Now you look at it, not knowing this pasuk, you say, well, you know, I can't believe he did this. How cruel he is. No. But says, Rabbi Yohanan ben Nuri, this increased the love between us. Rabbi Akiva was my best friend because of it. Our Torah sages constantly personified the trait of loving rebuke to such extent that they looked for people to admonish them because they wanted to perfect who they were. It's very difficult for us to see because it's so, why would I want to be admonished? Why would I want to be rebuked? It makes me feel bad. Well, that's why we're not the levels of Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Yohanan ben Nuri. If rebuke is to successfully effect an improvement in someone's behavior, then the Rambam writes that the tone of the rebuke needs to be acceptable to the listener. And that's the key. The key is the way it's presented. It has to be done in private. It has to be done benahat. And, and therefore, if a person doesn't do that, he can cause more harm uh, than, than good. Rebuke a person by addressing him that he's a wise man. This is for your own benefit. This is, this is for your good. To bring shalom. You know, there's, um, there's a, a parable that's uh, that uh, pretty famous. You may have heard it before, of the uh, of the sun and wind, Shemesh and Ruach, who were both arguing with each other as to which one was stronger, and each attempted to prove its superiority by how much damage it could cause. But neither was able to emerge victorious because both could be equally destructive. So finally, they agreed upon a test. Whoever could strip the traveler walking down the road of his coat would be declared the winner. Okay, so they did a they did a test. So the wind went first, 
and he began to blow, to blow the poor traveler. What did he do? He responded by tightening his coat because it got so cold firmly around him. And the more fiercely the wind blew, the more adamantly this wayfarer clung to his coat and finally the wind gave up in defeat. The sun now began to shine. And as the warm rays beat down on the traveler, he began to relax the grip on the coat. And now he started to sweat. And it now he's getting uncomfortable until finally the traveler yielded to the warmth of the noontime sun and got rid of the coat. What's the moral of the story? The moral is what the stormy, fierce winds of wor fierce words of rebuke cannot accomplish. Sometimes a few well-chosen gentle, sunny, warm words of encouragement are able to do. We all have a little bit of let's and a little bit of chacham inside of us. No one is complete chacham. Sometimes we scoff at the ideas that what people say to us and we don't want to listen. But often all we need is just words of encouragement. The same guidelines probably, uh, not probably, do apply for parental rebuke. Parents that wish to reprove their children and direct them in the proper path. Parents who label their children with terms such as uh, stupid or liar not only ensure the child's resistance to their reproof and that they're not going to pay attention to that, but they'll also reinforce such misbehavior. And as if you're going you're gonna to give them encouragement to live up to that name. I'm going to show my parents that I'm a liar. I'm going to show my parents that I'm stupid. So what happens? So what should you do if you see your child do something wrong? Parents who say differently, parents who say, you know, such a good child like you wouldn't do something like that. Now all of a sudden you encourage your son and your daughter through the reproof to live up to the positive image. You're a good child. And now the tochacha becomes lovingly accepted. And uh, this idea is pointed out by Rav Chaim Ivalajin in his Sefer Keter Rosh. He writes, Tochacha shelo ledaber kashot udvarim kashim ena nishma'in. Raki amer bishon raka. Rebuke takes place when one does not speak harshly because harsh words are not accepted. But rather, a person should, it should be uttered in a gentle tone. And if it's not his nature to speak softly, he just doesn't have it in him. You are totally absolved and exempt from giving rebuke. In the name of Rabbi Udabar Shimon, very famous statement in Masechet Yevamot says, just like it's a mitzvah for a person to say something which the listener will accept, it is also a mitzvah for a person not to say something when the listener will not accept. And we learn it from this pasuk. Do not rebuke a scoffer. Do not rebuke a scoffer. It's a mitzvah not to say it if he's not, if he's not going to listen. I said this story in our Perkei Avot Shiur that we gave also uh, using the sources of Tversky, Zecher Tzadik Livracha, Amazing story of the Vizhnitzer Rebbe who visited a manager of a bank who was well known for his, um, what can I say, reformed, enlightened views of Judaism. In no means was he a, a Torah scholar. He was probably anti-religious, but he had a lot of respect for the Vizhnitzer Rebbe. 
and uh, he welcomed him courteously. And uh, the Rebbe sat down in the chair in front of his desk, and after a very long silence, he, the Rebbe got up and headed towards the door without saying anything. And the banker walked with him outside the bank, pretty much almost to his house. And finally, unable to contain himself, the banker told the rabbi, Rabbi, why did you come? Why did you come to the bank? You didn't say anything. What's going on? So the rabbi said, I came to do a mitzvah. A mitzvah. The banker said, what mitzvah? What mitzvah? You didn't even do anything. You didn't even say anything. What mitzvah did you come to do? So the rabbi said, I came to perform the dictum of the Chachamim, that same Gemara that I just quoted in Masechet Yevamot, that just like it's a mitzvah for a person to say something which will be accepted, so too it's also a mitzvah for a person not to say something which will not be accepted. And as is clear, in your case, you're not going to accept what I want to say, so I fulfilled the mitzvah. So the banker looks at him and he says, I don't understand. What are the words that you are going to say that was not going to be accepted? So the Rebbe says, I can't say, because I'm sure that you're not going to listen to the words. But the banker's curiosity just kept, he kept on pushing, he pushed, he pleaded with the Rebbe to reveal this thing that he wanted to say. And finally, the Vishnitzer Rebbe explained, there's a widow in the community that stands to lose her home to the bank. And the bank is going to foreclose on her property. And I wanted to plead with you to cancel her mortgage. But since I know that you weren't going to agree, I didn't even voice my request. And the banker said, what? I can't do such a thing. It's not a personal debt to me. If it was a personal debt, I would do it. I'm only an employee of the bank. It's not me. I'm not the owner of the bank. Ah! The Rebbe says, you see, just as I predicted, you would not listen. And he cut him short, and the Rebbe turned around and went back home. But the Rebbe's words hit their mark, and within a few days, the widow's mortgage was paid off from the banker's personal funds. Her debt was canceled. She was able to remain in uh, the home. Ten lechacham beyechkam od, last pasuk tonight, give wisdom to a wise man and he will become even wiser. Teach a worthy student and through his own understanding, says Rashi, he will become still wiser. Rashi actually cites an example. How HaKadosh Baruch Hu commanded Noah at the time of the Mabul to take seven pairs of every kosher animal in the ark. And though he was to take only two of the non-kosher animals. But when the Mabul was over and Noah left the ark, he built a Mizbeach and brought the Korbanot to HaKadosh Baruch Hu from the kosher animals. Because Noah reasoned, why did God command me to take seven pairs of the kosher animals. It must be that he wants me to bring korbanot. So you gain wisdom. You gain understanding the more that you study. This Midrash also applies to Betzalel as well. In his instructions to build the Mishkan in the Midbar, Moshe Rabbeinu first commands him to fashion the Aron HaKodesh, the, the Ark. But Betzalel understood that really the Mishkan should be built first. Because there needs to be a home where the Aaron can, can rest. And like this, there are many, many other examples. One more about Shmuel Anabi when he was a young boy. In the beginning of Sefer Shmuel, he heard a voice calling him at night. 
and not realizing that it was God who was speaking to him, he ran to Eli, the Kohen Gadol, for direction. Eli told him to lie down again, and should he hear the voice, he should respond, Speak, Hashem, because your servant is listening. However, upon hearing the heavenly voice, Shmuel answered, Speak, for your servant is listening, and he omitted the word Hashem. Why? Because he just wasn't sure if it was indeed HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And you see, you gain, you gain wisdom. Right? Maybe it's not God. So that's where we see this, this idea. Make wisdom known to the righteous, and he will add his learning. Once you make wisdom known to the tzaddik, and from his own knowledge, he will add more teachings to what he has already heard. And you can, I can attest, uh, as, a, as a teacher, as a student, that the more a person engages in the study of Torah, no question, the, the, the amount of understanding, the quality of the understanding is vastly superior than what you started with. This is, these are the messages of this hostess. This hostess who is setting the table of bread and wine and meat ready for us to partake from the Torah Shebikhtav, the Torah Shebe'alpeh, understanding the wisdom of the world, the creation of the world through the messengers, through the maidens of uh, Moshe and Aharon, Adam and Chava, and all the great teachers that have guided us along the way, listening to their words of wisdom, accepting their rebuke, because we are indeed, we consider ourselves to be chacham, Chachamim, and that's why we want to accept the rebuke, because it sharpens ourselves, it sharpens our midot, and allows us to gain better understanding of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and the world that He created. We will continue this parak next week. Wishing everyone a wonderful night.